Hey, everybody, welcome to the Addiction Unlimited podcast, where you get to learn everything you want to know about addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Angela Pugh, co-founder of Kansas City Recovery, life coach, and recovering alcoholic. To learn more about me, you can listen to episode zero on your podcast app or find us on the web at addictionunlimited.com. Hello, my friend. Welcome to another episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. I'm your coach, Angela Pugh, and I have a very special guest for you today with a very special topic. And here's a quote of hers I just read that you definitely need to hear. She said, it's not about convincing, and it will never be about convincing our parents to see the way in which they have harmed us. We have every right to express this, but if we have an expectation, they're going to receive it in a way that feels good for us or that we are somehow going to change them, we will most likely be left feeling even more hurt and disappointed. This is us acting out the unconscious fantasy that our parents will one day be the parents we always wanted them to be. Holy moly, my friends, that (laughs) is major. And some of you may be aware of another program we talk about a lot in recovery or another struggle many of us have, and that's being the adult child of an alcoholic or addict or an adult child from a dysfunctional family, whatever the dysfunction may be. And for those of you who aren't familiar, growing up with these circumstances leaves wounds and scars and trauma, and we carry all of that into our adult life, and it shapes how we interact in the world and how we choose partners and the patterns we repeat over and over again. My guest today is Andrea Ashley. She talks about these topics in such a simple and refreshing way. I couldn't wait to get her on the show. She's the host of the Adult Child Podcast. And some of the topics I want to get into today is the convincing that she talked about in that quote I read, as well as how being an adult child affects our dating and mating lives. Picking and dating emotionally unavailable people. You know, this topic hits close to home for me, my friend. So buckle up and get ready for some TMI. I'm sure we're probably going to overshare. And I also want to cover some of the common characteristics of growing up in this type of environment and what that looks like and how we can heal. So, Andrea, thank you so much for coming on today and recording this episode with me. Happy to be here. Love talking. Start with, just tell everybody a little bit about you and what you do. Okay. Well, first, what I want to say is when you're talking about being an adult child, I'm just going to throw it out there. If you're in recovery in any of the programs, you're an adult child too. Sorry, you are. (laughs) Uh, If you grew up around addiction, you're an adult child. (laughs) If you experienced any sort of trauma during your childhood, which most of us did, you're an adult child Mm -hmm. and probably like 90% of the world is an adult child. So just saying that (laughs) (laughs) I, I always knew that my childhood was less than ideal, but I also knew that other people had it a lot worse than me. Mm. You know, I was never physically or sexually abused. All of my needs and wants were always accounted for. But I grew up with an with an alcoholic mother and a workaholic, emotionally unavailable father. Um, but then I started acting out at 12. 
And I became, well, I became the identified patient of my family, like at age nine. And then at age 12 is when I started using drugs and alcohol myself. And so then I really became the focus of the family. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It worked. Like me starting to act out, my mom stopped drinking and my parents stopped fighting as much because they had to like come together to deal with me. I was a hot mess. I was, I'll tell you this one story, which pretty much sums up who I was when I was drinking. I'm a senior in high school. So I got sent to rehab too, for the first time in the eighth grade, just throwing that out there. So I was invited to this birthday party and I was only allowed to attend if I agreed to only drink beer. At first they said I could come if I didn't drink at all, but then I was able to like negotiate to beer only. And that was because of like some scenes that I had caused with this particular group of people. They were really my boyfriend's friends, not my friends. But so I drink a bottle of wine by myself before I go thinking like, this is going to kickstart my buzz, you know, to where I want it to be. I went to the party fully intending to only drink beer, but I'm an alcoholic. And so my intentions don't mean shit once I ingest alcohol. Uh, so it wasn't long after arriving at the party before I start getting into the liquor. And then it's not long after that, that I'm kicked out of the party and escorted home by two people. Well, what do I do? This is in 2007, six. Well, I, as soon as I got home, I called a taxi and I had the taxi take me right back to the party. (laughs) And where else are you going to go? Yeah. And so when they weren't super excited to see me, well, I created quite a lot of noise and made quite a big scene, causing the neighbors to call the police and everyone at the party got arrested for underage drinking. So that was me, party animal, super bummed you didn't have the opportunity to drink with me, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so then thankfully, by the grace of God, I got sober at 19 in 2008. So I just celebrated 14 years in September, but at nine years sober, um, I hit an emotional bottom that was even more painful than the bottom that brought me into sobriety. And it was the result of years and years and years of really toxic, painful relationships. And I couldn't figure out what the fuck was wrong with me for so long. Like I couldn't figure it out. And I had no idea that what I was experiencing when I was in a relationship was complex PTSD. Like I had no idea that I was living in a trauma response every time I was in a relationship. And it was, I I dated two alcoholics named Brian back to back. The very first episode of my podcast is called the tale of two Brian's. And I dated Brian number one. At seven years sober, I dated him for less than a month. When he ghosted me, my reaction was as if my husband of 30 years had just tragically died in a plane crash. (laughs) And I became a non-functioning human. Like I couldn't go to work. I couldn't do anything. And it was through that, that I had my first aha when I realized there's no way that the way I'm feeling right now could actually be about this guy. Like I had known him for less than a month and he clearly had a drinking problem. And then the second aha I had was 
this is a feeling I felt often as a child. And that was like the first time that I was really able to connect the dots. And so it was like a few months or a few, yeah, a month or two later, I'm at a, um, an AA meeting and I hear this woman with over 30 years of sobriety sharing how at seven years sober too, for her, that she had hit this emotional bottom and came to terms with the true impact that her childhood had on her. And she mentioned the book, adult children of alcoholic and dysfunctional families. So I go home, I read the book and my mind is blown, blown. And I see her the next week at the meeting and I go up to her and I'm like, thank you so much for your share. I read this book. It was amazing. And she looks at me and she goes, Andrea, uh, that's great. But I just want you to know that just reading that book isn't going to be enough, that this is going to take you years and years and years to work through. This is your life's work. Uh, you can get past this, but you have to treat this just as seriously as you did when you first got sober. And I was 28 at the time, or I think I was 28. And I looked at, I was thinking years, (laughs) years lady, like I don't have years. I'm almost about to become a senior citizen. When I turn 30, I need this shit fixed yesterday or at most like a few months. And so I was really just hoping that her childhood was like way worse than mine was. <laughs> and so I was just like, okay, I'll take a year off from dating. Surely that'll suffice. Uh, and I did that. And then um, enter Brian number two. And it was the most excruciating six months of my entire life. I was like leaving work at 11 in the morning to go pull him out of bars. I was in so much pain. And it was through that that I realized just truly like how serious what I was dealing with was. And when that relationship ended, I knew that my life depended upon facing this stuff. Yeah. It's so interesting how different everybody's journey is too, you know, because I was reading um, when I was going through your Instagram and stuff, which I I am so fascinated with. I love your videos. Like it was so fun just going through and listening to your topics and stuff. But like how things dawn on you is so different. And when you were talking about that sort of rock bottom moment, like I always say, like I've had so many rock bottom moments through my recovery, right? Mm-hmm. Like the original, of course, the rock bottom moment gets sober, but then I've had financial rock bottom moment. I've had the relationship rock bottom moment and how things sort of register and sink in is different for everybody. And I think that's one of the hard things for people to understand that everybody's journey is going to be different. Mm-hmm. You're going to heal different things at a different stage than I did, right? There's no format for how we heal. Mm -hmm. But it is, you know, it's really common between five to 10 years of sobriety is often when that deeper shit starts to come up. I mean, I I think Melody, I've read it in several books, like uh, Melody Beatty mentions that specifically in in one of her books. And um, it's kind of like when you know, we've, we've, we've dealt with the substances to an extent. It's like our psyche knows that we're now ready to kind of deal with the deeper causes and issues. Right. And I always knew that drinking was just a symptom, yeah. but I think it's through this stuff that I realized that like truly my alcoholism is just a symptom, yes, completely. you know, yeah. and it's really just this underlying trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And coming to that, like, 
for me, like I said, I was four years sober and I had my relationship rock bottom. And for me, it was that at four years sober, I was literally dating one of the worst people I had ever picked, you know, and I was four years sober, like really getting my shit together, like working my ass off. I decided (laughs) to go to college. I was already old, you know, like I was really getting it together and had another one. How long have you been sober? Uh, So I just turned 17 in January. Nice. So I was dating this dude who was horrible, right? And I get the call. He shows up at this bar with this other girl and he's alcoholic, (laughs) drug addict, but he was my type of guy, right? And for all the years of dating, I picked one type of guy. And just because Uh I got sober doesn't mean all the years of that habit of that guy magically went away. So even in my sobriety, I was still picking that type of guy. And, and he was the worst, just liar, cheater. Can I get his number? Yeah, absolutely. I'll share it with you. (laughs) (laughs) But it was, it was what, it was the moment of like, Angela, what the fuck are you doing? Really? Like, what are you doing? How do you have all of this going on and so positive in your life? And you're still kicking it with losers. Like what? There's something wrong there, you know? And that's when it really started to register for me that these are bigger issues. This is a much more deep seated issue. And I think I understood first that it was self-esteem. That was my first realization is like, okay, if I really had a healthy self-esteem, I wouldn't be picking people who didn't have any self-esteem or self-respect or you know what I mean, who wanted to lie and cheat and do all those things. So that was the first thing I understood is like, this is a self-esteem issue. And then with that came codependence, boundaries, all of that learning started. And I was like, okay, this makes a lot of freaking sense. (laughs) I had a similar realization too, where, you know, I, I always considered myself to have like high self-esteem and high self-worth. And it was the realization that like, clearly my actions show otherwise. Right. Right. Or like you can be confident in certain areas of life, but not necessarily confident in yourself. You know, like I was a really great bartender. I could be totally confident in that, but that didn't mean I was a good human, right. Or a healthy, well-adjusted human. Yeah. It's all, it's crazy. One of the things I saw on your Insta that really struck a chord with me too, is you said when you are habitually disappointed by a parent, when you're a child, then you learn to habitually disappoint. Uh And I I think this is an underlying current (laughs) in maybe all of us, but certainly most of us. And I'd love for you to get into that a little bit more and explain that. Yeah. So, you know, part of, part of hitting my, my adult child bottom came the realization of how much I had been selling myself short in life, like from a career perspective, I truly had never considered what a fulfilling career or life would look like outside of a relationship. Like that was my sole purpose in life. Um, And I was like a CPA at the time. And I just realized like, okay, you you could have a fulfilling life and career. And so I kind of just embarked on this journey to, to figure out why I was put on this earth, you know? And so it was just like a crazy several year experience of learning about myself, 
and mostly and, and realizing that what makes me really special is my my vulnerability and just my unabashed authenticity and just my ability to connect with strangers and you know it, it eventually like led me to to starting the podcast and um the thing just really like blew up overnight and i know that this is like my higher calling but but it's really fucking scary like it's i'm still it'll be two years, almost two years. I just had my hundredth episode of the main pod. I just hit, I'm about to hit a million downloads and I'm still battling with so much self-sabotage um, and procrastination when it comes to this, you know, cause part of it is like, I was the scapegoat, you know, like I was the identified patient And so I've really been trying to connect more with my inner child. It's been, at first it was super fucking corny to me, (laughs) like the whole concept of it. But I, 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 um, I had, I had this like aha moment where my inner child basically told me that, because I realized I've been shaming myself a whole lot. Like when I say like, I'm going to get X, Y, Z done tomorrow or like full disclosure. I I have an issue with candy crush. Like it's fucking embarrassing to admit, but it's real. And so uh, my inner child told me that when you promise and say that you're going to do these things the next day, like when you say you're not going to play games on your phone and you're going to be productive and you get X, Y, and Z, like say you're going to do whatever and you don't, Well, that makes me feel the exact same way as when like my mom as a little girl would tell me that she was going to stop drinking and she wouldn't. And that hits so hard, you know, just like my mom, like when my mom was saying that to me, she meant it. Yeah. She wasn't just feeding me words. Like I know that she genuinely like meant it when she said it, you know, and it's the same thing with me. When I say that I'm going to do that, I genuinely mean that. But it's, and so it's just realizing that like this feeling of being disappointed, like that's my base operating system. That's what's comfortable for me. Same thing with fear, right? Like as, as a result of our childhood experiences, it's feeling uncomfortable is what's comfortable for us. Mm -hmm. Feeling disappointed is what's comfortable for us, you know? And so that's, you know, that's a a lot of it. That's the thing with all of this that is so baffling. Like when you really start to think about it, like when you think about how you find yourself in these relationships, because you genuinely are looking for somebody who's going to reinforce these beliefs that were unworthy and unlovable, you know, it just, the whole thing is crazy. (laughs) Crazy. Such a vicious cycle too. I saw something a while back where somebody was talking about like that fierce independence, which I definitely fall in that category, right? Fiercely independent. I do everything myself. I am on my own. I'm a solo act, you know, and that is my thing. And she was talking about kind of the same thing. Like when you are just consistently disappointed and let by other people or by other people. people. Yeah, exactly. Then you get to that place of like, just F it. I'll just do it my damn self, right? Like I'm not even going to ask. Like I'll just handle it myself. We either think that like we can't do anything on our own. And that was another thing too. There's like a, I think that there's like a, there's like a belief that um, like that I can't be successful on my own too. I don't know how to explain it, but it's just been really interesting. Like I feel like I'm shedding 
there's still so much more work to be done as there always is. But I feel like I'm really, that's, what's been so beautiful about this podcast too, is that, and I come up every week and I don't try to act like I have it all figured out. Like I, I share when I'm, you know, struggling and, but what's really cool is like, it's, finally being able to like live as my true self and do what it is that I was put on this earth to be doing. That's now allowing me to tap into like those deeper levels of shame that still need to be healed. Yeah. But it's a different sense of purpose. You know, I think that's also why I could never be ashamed or have shame about being an alcoholic where a lot of people struggle like with that word and they don't want to call themselves that. And for me, I always kind of wore it as a badge of honor because it (laughs) instantaneously gave me a purpose and allowed me to understand that there was something bigger for me. And I wasn't just a loser piece of shit drunk and I wasn't just going to die a loser piece of shit drunk, but there actually was something bigger for me. And I never knew that before. So being an alcoholic to me is like the greatest thing that ever happened. I feel the exact same way. The first time I went to an AA meeting, I was 12 with my mom and I raised my hand. I said, hi, I'm Andrea. And I don't want to be an alcoholic. <laughs> and then I was in rehab like a year and a half later. Yeah. But like, that was my, that's been my identity. For so long. Um, And so I don't have any embarrassment about that. And I also don't really have any embarrassment about telling all of my like really cringy dating stories. But the thing that I don't want anybody to know, and this is like, this was the hardest episode. I, I don't ever feel people are like, you're so vulnerable. You're so brave. Like, I don't feel that way. Like, this is just who I am all the time. But the one time that I felt super exposed on my podcast was when I talked about money stuff. Mm -hmm. During my, when I was like active in my adult child disease, I was very financially reckless. It wasn't like going on lavish shopping sprees or, you know, vacations, but it was just like little things like ordering takeout all the time and like taking Ubers and Lyfts everywhere when I could have taken the bus or walked and just all this like little stuff adding up. And then me having absolutely like no regard for how much I was actually spending and then just creating this, this financial like shit show. And I don't want anybody to fucking know about that because in my family, like money was the most important thing and being financially irresponsible was the worst thing that you could possibly be. Yeah. I can still relate to that too, because for me, it felt like, oh, this is just one more way that I'm the family fuck up. You know, it's like, yeah. just one more way that Angela can't. And I almost wonder if it's a way for me to, if it was a way for me to keep myself in that role. Like, I have to look at that too. Like, what are the ways that I'm subconsciously keeping myself like in that scapegoat role, right. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's all fascinating because it is like every piece of the recovery journey, whatever part you're recovering from in the moment, is all so deep seated. Like it's so deeply ingrained in these messages that we've heard through our whole lives. And it's interesting that you brought up the money stuff too. I just recorded a podcast um, 
about exactly that stuff, right? And how to break through some of those things and how we hold ourselves back and the irresponsibility of money and whether it's racking up debt or just being irresponsible and spending when you shouldn't spend or, you know, having bad credit, like, and there's so much shame and embarrassment and all of those things too. Yeah. And the other thing I was just thinking about is, you know, with my friends that I got sober with my like closest friends, I'm really the only one that has shockingly, who's like really hit a horrible, like second bottom. And I felt a lot of shame about that at a certain point, but now I'm so grateful. Like I'm so grateful because I've gone so much deeper, you know? Yeah. Like I just feel like I was, when I I had Dr. Drew on my podcast and that was one thing that he talked about, about how like, you know, there's certain people that maybe just like going to AA and NA and like working the steps is going to like, he says, we all have these issues, yeah. but like for some people, it just might not get to the point where it's like as painful enough to where they have to address them. But for like somebody like me, it was like not an option. Mm-hmm. Like I was going to fucking die if I didn't, you know, if I didn't address this stuff. And I just feel so honored that I get to do this work and be on this journey because I just know myself on such a more intimate level and also the ability to have intimacy with other people yeah. and the relationships that I've been able to build as a result of that are just priceless. Yeah. That's the good stuff. And it's so much more empowering, right? Than just being sick. And I guess different when you don't know you're sick, because I certainly have had, again, like all those rock bottom moments, like realizations throughout my recovery where I'm like, oh shit, I have that, or I have that behavior. I need to work on that. Or what's that? Where'd that come from? You know, like there are always themes, but it's so, to me, being a control freak, which most people with addiction are, you know, being a control freak, there's this incredible sense of control when you really do know yourself and get Mm. deep with yourself because that's what gives you the opportunity to become whoever you want to become. I get to build myself to be exactly the person I always wanted to be. And that's an incredible opportunity. Yeah. When we really like think about what is an adult child, well, an adult child is this false self. So it's like at some point during our childhood, we learned that who we were wasn't okay. Yeah. Right. And so then we take on, we put on all these masks and take on all these layers becoming the person that we think we need to be in order to be loved and accepted. And that's why I'm so passionate about adult child recovery, because it it truly is about becoming our true selves. Yeah. Talk a little bit about different ways that this affects us in dating and even marriage partners, whatever that looks like, how these characteristics of being an adult child affect those things. Well, I'll talk about like the three ways for me that, um, or I think like the three, I like to think about it from a dating perspective is like, of like, as from trauma, like having trauma responses. Cause yeah. that was something that like, like I said, I really had no idea that that's like what I was experiencing. Right. Like I didn't understand how, like, as soon as I was in a relationship with somebody, like my peace of mind was completely hijacked. Yeah. Um, and the thing too, that I'll say is that I was not somebody who hopped from one relationship to the next. Like I would have significant periods of time in between where like, I felt really good about myself. 
I was convinced that I was going to do things differently the next time, but that was never the case. And that's because of the trauma piece that wasn't healed. Right. So I think that if there is like a super instant big connection with somebody initially run away, <laughs> that's not a good sign. I'm so, unfortunately, I used to live for that. <laughs> I know. And now it's like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> if you feel super jazzed up about somebody on the first date, that means that like your attachment is style is getting revved up. Unfortunately. So yeah, I would say that. So like, for me, it's like, um, like emotional dysregulation. So your mood is dictated based off like how the relationship is, you know, is doing, if it's going well, you're at a 10, if it's not, um, you know, you're at a zero or like the feeling like you're going to die when you don't hear back from them. Like when you, when you text them and it's like 30 minutes and you like literally feel like you're going to die. I felt like such a loser. Like I like consciously, I knew that this was so ridiculous. You know what I mean? Like, like what the fuck is wrong with you? Like it's been 30 minutes and you literally feel like you're going to die. But what I didn't realize is that is what we call an emotional flashback. It's an emotional flashback, which is like the key characteristic of complex PTSD. And we literally are being transported back to our childhood and feeling those feelings to where, yes, now with our conscious mind, we can look back on those childhood experiences and be like, okay, well, like my life really wasn't at risk or maybe it was, but like as kids, we didn't have that level of, of thinking, right. you know, like we really felt like our life was at risk. So yeah. So that like, just like the, and then when you finally hear back from them, it like literally feels like you just took a handful of Xanax, you know? <laughs> Listen, I kick it up a notch too. If they weren't texting back, then I'd shoot off a text to start a bite. You know, I'd be like, oh, I guess you're too busy to talk to me. You know, we call that protesting behaviors. That's what that's called. It's protesting. So funny behaviors. because I think about it now, like now as a grown up and, and pretty emotionally mature and healthy, and as a busy person, I'm like, there are times it might take me a couple of days to respond to my friends, you know? And I'm like, if somebody behaved like that with me, I would probably just delete them. You know? Oh, I know. <laughs> and then what about like, work. just like the, the instant sender's regret, like, <laughs> like the instant, like, you know, you're waiting to hear from them and then you text them and then you feel way more anxious after you like reach out to them than if you hadn't, but so I, I want to share like an experience that I had, um, about a year ago, you know, I, I took like a significant period, like off from dating when I really started doing this work. Um, and then I started like dipping my toe back in the pond, but so it was about a year ago that I started talking with somebody who some red flags were revealed a couple weeks in, but it was like the first person that I really was like excited about in a long time. And that, that fear of abandonment got triggered. But it was so amazing because I now had this like awareness of what it was that I was experiencing, you know? So like, I'm like, okay, like you're, you're in a, you're having a trauma response right now, you know, like what you're reacting to, hopefully like if it's hysterical, it's historical, right? Like that's one of my favorite things. And so what do we do with that? Like the best way what to do is, is, is to sit with it. So I 
closed my eyes. I was like taking deep breaths. I was seeing where I felt it in my body. And then I was telling my inner child, like, you're okay. Like you're safe. Like, I'm not going to abandon you. I love you. Like you're safe. And it passed. It passed after like 45 minutes. And so I think that that's the thing too, is like, unfortunately, I don't know if that stuff's ever going to go away completely. Um, but we get to have these like new tools, you know, to do that. But it's, it's truly like a gift from our higher power. Cause we're just going to keep, we're going to keep attracting people um, in our lives who are going to give us an opportunity to heal what needs to be healed, yes. you know? Yeah. So, and if you can just pay attention to that, yeah, you'll get a lot of information. You get a lot of feedback from all those experiences and try not to be judgmental. That's the thing too, is like, you're not just be compassionate. Like there, there's nothing wrong with you. Like, that's the big thing too, that I try to portray is like, it's not just like normalizing like this adult child thing, but like, it's okay. Like, let's embrace it. Like there's nothing shameful or embarrassing about growing up in an alcoholic family or dysfunction. There's nothing shameful or embarrassing about having complex PTSD and dating. Like, right. it's, it's nothing, you yeah. know? Yeah. Not embarrassing. I think a, a big part for me too was understanding that for the other people also, where, you know, I certainly had a few significant relationships that were very unhealthy and had a lot of anger and resentment toward those people for how they treated me and all those things. Right. And at some point in my recovery, I kind of understood that like they were sick also. Right. It's not like they seeked out in their life to get me and hurt me. You know what I mean? It's like, listen, they were sick, too. I was sick as fuck for sure. And so were they. And having that kind of empathy and understanding is like, OK, this wasn't about me being victimized. Right. Like I chose these people. I created relationships with these people, continued to ignore red flags and get deeper into it. Those were all my choices. And we were just two really sick people. And that's what happens, right? Everybody gets hurt. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm so grateful for all of them, you know, because yeah. they're a part of my journey. And they gave me a shitload of excellent podcast content. So, <laughs> And they continue to. I just had a girl. So t yesterday was my 100th episode. And I, I had a girl reach out to me uh, a couple weeks ago. She discovered the podcast after she went on a second date with the Brian number two. Oh my God. Such a small world. Yeah. Well, it's just moments like that where I realized that I'm, there's been so many experiences like that. Like it's, it, it, it's just anytime I doubt, have doubt, it's like, okay, like clearly you're doing what you need to be doing. But so he, they had a really good first date. And then on the second date, after she left, he realized that like unbeknownst to her that he had drank like a whole bottle of her vodka, like without her even realizing it. So she ended up like confronting him about it. And then he was like, yeah, I mean, yeah, I understand. Like I have a drinking problem. Like even my ex-girlfriend like made a podcast about me. And I remember him texting me actually being like, Hey, I told this girl that I wanted a date with about your podcast. And I said, that's so fucking weird. Why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> so. Strange turn of events. 
<laughs> no, he didn't tell me it was because like he drank a whole bottle. He was like, I'm what? I'm proud of you. He didn't tell me it was because he drank a whole right. bottle for vodka on the second date. <laughs> <laughs> so for the person listening to this today, mm-hmm. what is something they can do an action they can take like right now to start working on healing some of this stuff or to get a better understanding. Like how would you guide people to start dipping their toe in? Read the laundry list. No, it is the 14 common characteristics of an adult child. Okay. So it's through ACA, okay. uh, the, the 12 step program. Right. Uh, and read the, the listeners, laundry list. I will link that in the show notes so you guys can find that. Yeah, the first time I read it, it was a spiritual experience. It is for many people. It blew my mind. If you can relate to three or more of them, you're probably an adult child. But like really the ACA, the big red book is the um, the primary text for the ACA. Like even if you're not in 12 step or want to be in that program, read that book. It is, it'll blow your mind. Yeah. It's the best out there. So I would, I would just start there and just start getting more information. It's hard work, but it doesn't have to like only be hard. Yeah. You know, like there's rewarding too. Mm -hmm. All the hardest work is the most rewarding. I agree. Andrea, thank you so much again for coming on and doing this. Yeah, this has been awesome. Such good conversation. And I will link your Instagram in the show notes too, because I love your Instagram. I want people to be able to find that too. So thank you. Thank you. You've reached the end of another great episode of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. Candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery. Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.